Well, hello, everybody, uh, and welcome to this session as part of the Source for Tomorrow conference. We are talking about transparency and sustainability in the wine industry. My name is Toby Webb. I'm the co-founder of Sustainable Wine. We're a platform for change, helping the wine industry become more transparent and more sustainable. We hold conferences, we publish podcasts and articles, and we are involved in catalyzing the Roundtable for Sustainable Wine, which is taking shape as we speak. If you'd like to know more about what we do, have a look at www.sustainablewine.co.uk and you can see that we held a recent conference in November with about 800 winemakers and various actors in the wine industry where we talked about sustainability for two days. All of those sessions are free at sustainablewine.co.uk so you can download them as podcasts or you can watch the video uh, and there's many great, great speakers who uh, will enlighten you with some of the, the thoughts and thinking and discussions that are happening in wine around sustainability. But one person who wasn't there, uh, because we probably forgot to invite her, and it was Thanksgiving, so she was probably busy with her family, is, is Emma Swain, um, who's CSW and CEO of Sinsupri, uh, Estate Vineyards and Winery in Napa Valley, California. So Emma, welcome to the session. How are you today? Excellent. Thanks so much for having me, Toby. It's nice to be here with you. Well, thank you to Nina Bellamy-Jones and her colleagues for setting this up. They've done the hard work of coordinating our diaries. I'm just here to ask you, uh, ask you some questions, Emma. First question, um, what is a CSW? Uh, I know what a CEO is, but what's a CSW? <laughs> so a CSW is a certification from the Society of Wine Educators. This is a certified specialist of wine. Um, similar to WSET, I also have WSET, but um, so CSW, WSET um, is similar, just a certification on our global knowledge of, of wine. Okay, excellent. So how long, uh, well, I was going to ask you how long you've been for, with Since Supri, but uh, why don't you tell us about the estate first and then talk about when you joined in your journey? I, I mean, I know that's the interlocking stories, but I think the, the viewers will be keen to know about where your organization comes from. And then let's talk about how you how you joined and what you've done since. Absolutely. So St. Supri was founded in 1982 by uh, Robert Scally, a Frenchman. He and his family looked for about 10 years to find a substantial property in the Napa Valley. And they purchased our Dollarhide Ranch in 1982, which is a spectacular property. You can see it's it, it's enormous. It's like a valley within Napa Valley. It's, um, it's just a little over 1,535 acres, over 600 hectares. And we've kept that property largely in its natural state and worked to enhance the biodiversity on that property. So that's where um, we started out. About a third of that property is planted to vineyards and some to uh, heirloom fruit trees. We've got a little over 1,200 heirloom fruit trees, seven lakes, and it's a, it's a super special place. And then the Scallies purchased a property in 1985 in the center of Napa Valley, our Rutherford estate, and built the winery there. So there's an old historic home on the property. It's a historic vineyard from the 1800s, but uh, and been replanted since. But uh, this property is where the winery is, and we're in a state winery. So everything uh, we make under the St. Supri label is grown, produced, and bottled by us on one of the one or both of these vineyards, and always at our winery. And that's very important 
to us from a sustainable perspective, a transparency perspective, equality perspective. Um, we feel very strongly being a state grown, produced and bottled is the best way for us to control our end product. And what's your personal journey with uh, the business then? Uh, you've been there a long time, I understand. I have been with St. Superi for um, 12 years next month, which I, I find kind of remarkable. That <laughs> um, I've been in the wine business a long time, and I started my career in the wine business working across the street from St. Superi um, many, many years ago in the early 90s. And um, I came to St. Superi after I finished selling a winery I'd been working for for 13 years, um, Sebastiani Vineyards in Sonoma Valley although I'd been living in Napa the, the whole time. And the former CEO of St. Supri was retiring. And so it was an opportunity for me to be working back in Napa Valley, which made me very happy, and to take over a really fantastic property and working for a great family with a history in the wine business since 1920. And so um, it was a challenging time to come in right in February of two, 2009. So um, quite quite an unusual time for global financial markets, but um, it was also a great time to make a lot of changes at St. Supri and bring new ideas and improvements to winemaking and viticulture. We got our first uh, Napa Green certification in 2008. Um, the winery had started to become 100% estate grown, produced and bottled at that point, and uh, we completed that in 2009. So um, we invested a lot of money in technology, equipment, vineyards, and sustainability, got the rest of our properties certified Napa Green, got the winery certified Napa Green. So we've been, um, we've been going through some great changes. So before we dive deeper into transparency and sustainability in your work with Napa Green and elsewhere in the community, let's just make sure our listeners and viewers understand what your products are. Because when people think of Napa wine, they think of red wine. Uh, if they know about wine, they'll think of Bordeaux blend traditionally. Um, but you do more than that, don't you? You make whites and you also make brandy, I believe. We do. So we, um, we produce... Uh, Primarily red and white Bordeaux varietals. We grow uh, Sauvignon Blanc on more about 225 acres. We grow about 8% of all the Sauvignon Blanc in Napa Valley. So it's pretty unusual to be about 50% white wine in Napa Valley. So we've got some fantastic vineyards that we started planting in 1985 for our Sauvignon Blanc, really nice old vines. We've been propagating our own field selection of Clone One for over 20 years on this property. So um, it's a really kind of unique, vibrant uh, field selection of Clone One that we're using at um, our Dollarhide Ranch. We also have um, grow a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon because we're Napa Valley, of course. And we make a, a red Bordeaux varietal blend called Alu and a white Bordeaux varietal blend called Vertu. And all of those are available in the UK. Um, they're our importer too. So um, it's not just Cabernet Sauvignon though, of course, I guess if you're a Bordeaux blend, you've also got some Merlot and some other red grapes. Yeah. Um, which of those and what proportions do you generally use them in? Are you, are you very high proportion Cabernet Sauvignon in your reds? So in our, um, in our ALU, which is our red Bordeaux varietal blend, it is about uh, typically about 70%, 60 to 70% Cabernet Sauvignon, 10 to 20% Merlot, little Malbec, Petit Bordeaux, and Cabernet Franc. Um, and the, the Malbec 
And the Petit Bordeaux and Cabernet Sauvignon, we grow all of those red varieties and the white varieties at our Dollarhide Ranch. It's a high elevation ranch. So we've got a little bit greater diurnal shift there. And those varietals do very well there um, with the soil types. We grow the Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Cabernet Sauvignon, and a little more Petit Prudot at our property in Rutherford. Very different soil structure, very different water accessibility for the vines, um, just uh, quite a different flavor profile we get from the two vineyards. And so we make a 100% Cabernet Sauvignon from uh, the Dollarhide Ranch, and we also make a 85% Cabernet Sauvignon from, from Dollarhide that has a little bit of the other varieties in it. But, um, and we make a Merlot by itself as well. But the Alu, which is our blend, we sort of don't put any constraints on it, but it is Cabernet dominant. And uh, are you using the grape skins from all or some of those to make your brandy? How does it work with your brandy production? So the brandy is kind of a fun product. We started growing Moscato when we first started planting the ranch. We started planting Muscat Canelli because the Scallies remembered um, enjoying the fruit when they were children, picking it off the vine. So we started growing Muscat Canelli. And so we um, make a little bit that we sell here in the U.S. of the, the Muscat and Moscato. And then we take a portion of that and ferment it completely dry. And then we double distill it in small copper stills. And then instead of cutting back that product with water, we cut it back with our Muscat Canelli wine. So it's got really pretty aromatics. It's a, it's a pretty wine. It, it, it's technically a brandy from our um, TTB labeling perspective, but it's also um, or a craft spirit. And it's a clear brandy. We don't age it in oak, but it's really a lovely product and, and a lot of fun, a little lighter and uh, fresher style than you would think of as a typical brandy. That sounds lovely. I often think brandy could do with a bit more wine aromatics in it. So um, that's just my personal taste. Excellent. Well, let's talk about the sustainability journey. I note from your website, you were an early um, proponent uh, and an enthusiastic participant in the Napa Green Programme, which seems to have informed a lot of your journey, if I'm not mistaken. Tell us where that came from and, and tell us about the achievements you've made to date. And then let's talk about the transparency element of that and how you talk to, to customers about it. Absolutely. So I, um, when I started my career in the early 90s, I was very influenced by a, a gentleman um, who founded uh, Diamond Creek Vineyards, and he was a huge proponent of being in a state winery. And we were also at um, Nibam Coppola Engelnick Estate. We were in a state winery at the time I was there. So for me, that was the first driving factor in um, improving wine quality that you need to be in a state, you need to have that control. And second to that, I have been involved with the Napa County Land Trust for um, since the early 90s here in Napa Valley and know the importance of preserving this fantastic and beautiful valley that we have. And when the Napa Green program came out, we really embraced it for a number of reasons. And those reasons were that it's not just the vineyard that we're talking about. It's the entire property and a property like Dollarhide, that's very important because we need to make sure that those hills aren't running down into the creek. We're not getting runoff. And those areas are not you know, necessarily areas that we're farming. And the surrounding area from the vineyard has an impact on the vineyard. You can't just be you know, a one acre parcel in the midst of everything else and be the only organic parcel. You've got to take care of everything around you. And so that was super important to me to get the Dollarhide Ranch um, certified 
diet as quickly as possible. And, um, and then secondarily, I loved the fact that, um, we were looking at all of our business practices and continuously improving. So the, the ranch and the, the land, we have to recertify every five years and we get inspected by federal, state and local agencies. So that was important to me to show that we're doing what we say we're doing. The other thing that I think was um, I really love about Napa Green because when we got certified for the land, we actually were doing everything we needed to do and didn't have to think too hard. We had to fill in a lot of paperwork. We had to be inspected, but we were doing the right thing in the vineyard. But the certification requires us to improve. And so every year we have to improve. And every time we get recertified, we need to meet new goals. And so it pushes the team to start new practices, to think about, well, let's reduce tractor passes and have sheep in the vineyard. Let's, you know, eliminate these inputs into the vineyard. Let's look at new ways to reduce uh, water usage because all of our water is uh, reclaimed rainwater out at the ranch. And so we thinking about these practices and how we can improve them and the Napa Green organization provides us with suggestions. We meet with our colleagues in other wineries and, and vineyards to look for ideas on things that maybe they're doing and we're not and that we can share and continuously improve. So that's super important to me and why I wanted to be involved with the Napa Green in addition, at the winery, I thought, oh, well, we got this Napa Green land. It's no problem. And um, we're going to keep getting better and better. And what we found at the winery when we first went for our certification is we were not being great. We were being great about recycling all of our water and and composting all of our pumice and all of our fruit and taking it back out to the vineyard. But we weren't being great about the type of light bulbs we were using. People weren't being thoughtful about printing emails. We weren't being thoughtful about um, the materials we were purchasing, how we were purchasing and making sure everyone was recycling. And so we, um, it actually took us about two years to get certified. The first time we were certified in 2012. And since then, we've done so much at the winery and really increased the awareness that people are taking their habits home with them as well. So I think that's an important factor. And at the winery, we get recertified every three years since we started the Napa Green program. We've cut our water use in half. We um, put in our first solar system um, on the roof of the building in 2015, our last one, second one we put in this year, and we expect from that to offset our entire power bill um, with our solar panels and our two new solar structures. Um, we've really, we use all of our water that we use for landscaping um, is recycled water. We're recharging the aquifer there. And we have a lot of metrics that we're looking at every day to continuously improve what we're doing. And so that's been fun. And we have a, a team um, with someone from every single department in the winery, whether you're in marketing, accounting, winemaking, the vineyard, um, you come to that meeting and you bring your concerns from your department. So in our um, break room, we compost our food scraps and we think about, you know, what we're doing as well as um, growing uh, food on the property for our employees and our guests and expanding the biodiversity on the Rutherford estate. We've planted about 85 more um, fruit trees around the vineyard and the, the winery. And we grow a huge variety of produce and uh, food that we give to our local um, 
homeless shelter as well as sharing with our guests and our employees at the winery. So that was kind of a long answer, sorry. It's okay, well, you're doing a lot of work, so it's, it's fair enough. Before we, before we come back and talk about um, a bit of the detail from some of the things you've just mentioned, let's talk about what your customers are asking for because I mean, transparency is, is a big word and it's something you're doing with your reporting against your, your NAPA um, certification. But I just wonder what drove that? Was it a desire uh, by customers to know more about the impacts of your winery? Or was it more that you felt there was a story to tell and this offered a framework for continuous improvement and for you to help tell them more about what you were doing? I'm trying to get a sense yeah. of what the push-pull was. So, you know, one of the things that I left out is that I'm a certified public accountant, and that's kind of where I started my career. So I like um, proof with things. I like things to be proven and to be certified and to be um, done correctly. And that kind of comes from that CPA background. And so that was one of the things that I felt was important. I felt that people are saying, oh, we're green, oh, we're sustainable, oh, we compost, oh, we do this. But there was no sort of governing factors um, for that. And I think that um, people sort of hear it and they start to not believe you because they don't know. And so I wanted that, that IRS audit, that authentication that what we were doing was correct so that people knew that they could trust what we were saying. And that, that to me was important um, for myself. It wasn't so much people were saying that to me, but as a consumer, I was seeing that in other industries. Like, well, what do you do? And um, drilling down on that, I really wanted to make sure that we're showing um, that we walk the talk and we do it correctly and we work hard um, and support other partners in the industry who do the same thing. What about consumers then? I mean, you know, you're, I looked at your, your top end wines and you know, they're, they're not cheap. Um, <laughs> But that's Napa, right? If you want good wine, you have to pay for it. I understand that. Those customers are obviously going to be interested in heritage. They're interested in terroir. They're interested in understanding the story. I'm just trying to get a sense of, from those top-end customers down to the other buyers of your wines, what's been the consumer, the customer interest in sustainability? What do they come to you with asking? And has that accelerated over recent years? You know, originally when we started doing this, everyone told us if we put the logo on the back of our wine, that it would automatically be less desirable to customers because there was a, a bad rap on organic or sustainable wines and that people weren't going to want to um, to see that as part of their wine program. And we felt it was really important to put it on our label because we're one of maybe... 10 wineries in Napa Valley that can put it on every single bottle. And because we're a state and because we have both certifications. So I, um, we, we actually got sort of the reverse feedback um, was what the surveys were telling us that people weren't interested in seeing it like that. And we sort of kept pushing forward because I think um, what we're seeing in the younger consumer in particular is that they want to know that we're taking care of um, the land. They want to know that we're doing the right thing. And, um, and that goes across all products, right? They want to, they want to have more interest in food. They have more interest where their food comes from. And um, 
the more we share with our consumers about what we do, the more interested they are, because I don't think they, they realize the level of effort that it, that it takes to make a bottle of wine. I mean, to your point that, you know, our wine is expensive and Napa Valley is an expensive place um, to live and our employees, you know, need to be paid a, a living living wage. And if our uh, workers are in the vineyard and they're touching those vines 20 to 30 times by hand during the growing season, you know, it starts to make the wine look really inexpensive (laughs) when you think about that. And so, um, you know, there's a quality and a a touch perspective that happens where we're, you know, handpicking our red fruit And then we're, you know, we were hand sorting it. Well, now we optically sort it. So it takes less labor, but we can still maintain the quality, but it still takes a a pretty hefty investment um, to do that, to sort the fruit, to um, bring in the quality that we want and the purity of fruit. And I I think that's an expectation in Napa Valley. If I'm going to make wine in Napa Valley, I better make the very best wine I can possibly make because it's one of the greatest growing regions in the world. And I, and I better do it in a way that's thoughtful for our employees and for the land and the community around us. You know, in Napa Valley, we have a agricultural preserve that prohibits the further development of a more than 80% of the valley. So, um, you know, that's very important. If we want to maintain this, this beautiful place for people to come and visit, it's a national treasure and it needs to be treated as such. Otherwise, um, if we don't, you know, the next generation won't be farming here. And and that's a message from working for closely held family held businesses and which is most of um, the wineries in Napa Valley, 95 percent are family owned and operated. And I think family owned businesses get this. They get that, you know, if we don't take care of this land, it's not going to be there for us um, in 10 years when my kids go to take care of take over. We need to be constantly rejuvenating the soil, the property, and um, and making sure it's in the right place. And so I think the consumer has started to understand um, that more, that it's part of what we do, but particularly when they visit Napa Valley, they realize what a beautiful place we're in, how fantastic it is. And um, when we explain, they say, well, can we have weddings here? Why, can, why aren't there restaurants here in the vineyard? And we explain, we don't have that because it's the agricultural preserve. You need to go into the cities to have the restaurants and those sorts of things. You need, you know, if you want to enjoy this agriculture, then we have zoned it and voluntarily voted for it to be agriculture. So um, I think when people visit, they get it. They know why we're doing what we're doing because it's a, it's a beautiful place and we want to protect it. So I'm getting the sense transparency for you is about educating your customers about what you're doing so they can appreciate the environment in which your grapes are grown and in which you're operating. And of course that makes a lot of sense. But I wonder about the, the next generation of drinkers, that those drinkers of wine who can't yet afford your top end wines. I wonder what you and the, the, the ownership, the family that own the estate feel about the next generation of wine consumers. There's been a, a lot of conversation in the wine media, if you, as you've seen, I'm sure, about hard seltzers. And in France, oh, yeah. there's concern about young people shifting away from wine to drinking spirits and craft beers. Um, and I wonder, do you, do you feel that sustainability is a key way for um, established names to stay relevant? 
And then if so, what else do they need to do to, to keep, to make that happen? So I, I think that, you know, when younger consumers have always um, experimented with different things, whether it was Bartles and James wine coolers in the eighties um, or different, different products, they've experimented with those. And um, I think tried different things. And a lot of that um, depends on your, your time in life, not, you know, you're starting your career, you earn more money, things like that happen. And you're able to try more uh, delicious products as you kind of go up um, the curve of the spend, because you do generally have to spend a fair amount of wine to get a quality um, bottle of wine from a large portion of the of the world. Now, now that spend can be $7 for many varietals, or it can be $70 for different things. But I think that, um, you know, the, the younger consumer, per, um, particularly here in the US is tasting a lot of different flavors earlier in their lives. And they're having sushi when they're four years old. They're trying Thai food when they're five years old. They're growing up with a broad range of cultures, cuisines, and flavors. And um, particularly in the sip that we've been in, uh, shelter in place that we're in, you know, people are cooking more at home. There's more of a demand to understand where their food comes from. Where where is my food coming from? It doesn't, you know. It, Steak doesn't come on styrofoam. It comes from an animal. And, and that um, transparency in your food product translates to your transparency in your wine. And, you know, we think it's really important to know where our food comes from. And that's why we partner with restaurateurs and purveyors and aquaculture and um, retailers who are thoughtful about the supply chain. And I think that transparency comes across everything that's going to be put in front of you when you sit down for a delicious meal. You should be able to know that that caviar was grown without hormones um, in a sustainable fashion, land-based aquaculture, and no hormones added in a, in a beautiful manner. And we're not depleting um, our natural resources, but still able to enjoy something quite delicious like they do with Sardinicli caviar. And um, whether it's your sustainable salmon that's coming, that's grown out in the, the ocean. Um, we've got so many wonderful purveyors that we, we work with like Aura King salmon, Starnik like caviar. We've got restaurants that we work with that put all of their oyster shells back out in the bay that are helping the bay um, breed more oysters and clean the water at the same time. And I think all of those things come together on your plate with your glass of wine and the younger generation and the older generation are more thoughtful about what they're putting in their bodies and where it came from. And I think that is um, an important message that every, every part of the, the plate and glass needs to share. I really, I think that's really smart linking it with food. I mean, it's kind of natural anyway, given that you're in a multi-crop environment. People think Napa is just monoculture, but it really isn't. Um, if you look at the other things you produce, and I love, I love the the the, the vegetarian and non-vegetarian wine matching on your website with the bottles. I thought that was really interesting. I'm not sure I've actually seen that before. Um, so I think that's very smart. And even if you don't come into it through wine, maybe you come into wine through food which many people do later on. Uh, and we, we all have to eat. 
not many of us do okay in our careers and want to carry on eating junk food all our lives. So, um, <laughs> so that's that's very smart. Now, let, let me come back then on the transparency side to talk about something a bit more geeky and a bit more accountancy related, which is uh, GHG emissions. Um, now, um, international wineries for climate action, led by Jackson Family and Torres, yeah. have um, been working on GHG emissions protocols for wineries, um, vineyards and wineries. I wondered what your views are on, on their work. I'm sure you've followed it. Do you see a time where um, the Napa green label is, is one thing, but accounting for your greenhouse gas emissions is another? And I wonder how those will link up and, and how you see the accounting and, and transparency around greenhouse gas emissions changing for you in the next few years and perhaps in how you do it and also how you talk about it. Yeah, I think it's really, um, I think it's really important. And I think what uh, Jackson family is doing is fantastic. And we're looking forward to joining them in, in the process. We just, um, we've got all our information and we're ready to get going because I think everyone needs to be paying attention. And as I said, we're learning constantly from our neighbors and they're doing a fantastic job. And so, you know, we're looking at, we use kegs, um, for our high volume by the glass accounts for Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, that um, since inception, we've reduced about 30,000 bottles we've saved from being used. So there's, you know, there's items like that that we're looking at. And, um, you know, we think about where our glass comes from. You know, how close to home can we have our glass made instead of bringing it from um, the other side of the world? And what components are recycled? And, and um, doing an audit. But um, back to the Napa Green, you know, they are constantly improving their own um, requirements as well. So they're not just requiring us to improve, but they're increasing their standards and certifications. And so they're going to start looking um, in the next couple of years at carbon sequestering and requiring carbon, new carbon neutrality for vineyards. Um, so we'll be going through that process as part of our next recertification as well. So, you know, I, I love that the new executive director is, is raising her own standards with Napa Green as well as ours. So I think that's important for all of us. And there's so many um, wonderful organizations in the wine industry working within their region because each region has different um, environmental factors that are affecting them, whether you're in Portugal or you're in Lodi or you're even in Sonoma, you know, we're, we have different impacts, different amounts of rain, different soil issues and um, different terrain and that and different climate. So all of that together is great that we have many um, small organizations that are focused on, on the area that they're in, as well as the global impact, but um, getting together with more companies and um, looking at the global perspective is super important. You know, we didn't get here overnight the, to climate change. It was a it was a slow burn, shall we say, and um, we need to pick up the pace to reverse it. But we also, um, to get more people involved, we need to be embracing um, some baby steps from people and spreading the word and being thoughtful about saying, okay, you can do this. There's a, a benefit to you as well. And um, when you see large players like at Costco who are um, bringing their uh, suppliers forward and 
requiring them to have transparency and fantastic sustainable standards before they'll even purchase from them. But helping them do that is is really important and it's inspiring. And we need to do the same thing with our colleagues in the wine business. If they say to us that they're not certified, they're never, you know, not practicing sustainable practices, we need to show them the benefit in quality, the environment, and how their people um, live. Absolutely. And do you think there's going to be a need for vineyard operators, owners, to demonstrate through whether they call it regenerative agriculture, whether they call it sustainable grape growing, how they are sequestering carbon in the soil in the coming years. Because um, I've seen some studies that suggest our best chance of tackling land-based natural emissions is actually on in agriculture more than forests, because many mature forests can be net GHG emitters for a variety of reasons. Um, whereas land can sequester enormous amounts of, of CO2, particularly with the no-till agriculture um, trends, which are taking hold in, in, uh, in vineyards and elsewhere. So I just wonder where you, where you stand on this area of regenerative agriculture and, uh, and, and talking more specifically about how much carbon you, your soil will be sequestering in the coming years. Yeah, we've been work we were working last year on getting a grant from the state of California and, um, as we applied, they ran out of money. And so that's how invested uh, California is in this concept. And um, there's a great deal of money available from the state and we'll continue to apply to get those additional resources to help us with it. But not only are they providing grants and money, but they're also providing um, resources for improving. And our vineyard team has been working with the state to look at how we can improve our carbon sequesterization in the vineyard. So that's an active program and some of the goals that the, our viticulture team have for the year. Yeah, I note um, the summary from the White House today of Biden's executive orders so far had a particular section on agriculture talking about exactly that collaboration between the private sector and federal and state authorities on carbon sequestration, land use and so on. So it's going to be a fascinating uh, pace of change. Perhaps perhaps organisations like yours shouldn't need grants, though, to do it. Perhaps it's just something you should be investing in anyway. With, with, uh, yeah. with well, we, we are, <laughs> but it certainly helps. No, it's fair enough, but that is expensive. Um, let me ask you about the winery then. I, I recently recorded a podcast with Hervé Bellon, who's the CEO of uh, Montrose in Bordeaux, and they're very proud of their carbon capture technology, uh, which is also being used and was pioneered by Smith Holofit down in the Grave in Bordeaux. Um, and they're capturing uh, CO2 from fermentation and turning it into potassium bicarbonate. Um, do you think that's something that might take hold where you are? Have you heard about anyone doing that uh, in Napa? Yeah, I actually, um, we had the Napa Valley Vintners for our annual meeting. We had Sierra Nevada Brewing Company come um, to Napa Valley and talk about their green practices. And what an amazing company. Um, he has so many fantastic um, ideas measures and that was also one of them um, in brewing and obviously they're fermenting every day of the year so um, really wonderful um, knowledge and hopefully something that we can also add for sure but there is uh, quite a bit of interest here and um, I think all of the vintners who attended uh, the seminar were pretty darn inspired. Yeah I asked one other CEO of Bordeaux Chateau about it about two weeks later I said, when will you be doing this? And he said, well, 
I'd rather focus on soil health because the more I focus on soil, the more carbon I sequester. Uh, and so I probably don't need to capture carbon from fermentation because I'm doing so much of carbon capture in my soil. So it's interesting that there are different ways of looking at this. Um, I, I was going to ask you, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, well, you know, if we can do both, then we can try both. But I, I do have to agree, you know, with resources, starting in the vineyard is easier and um, and can have a really big impact, particularly when you have as much land as we do compared to the amount of wine that we make. Yes, that's true. Um, let me ask you about the term circular economy then. I mean, there are lots of buzzwords around sustainability. Regenerative agriculture is one. Being a regenerative company is linked to that. But circular economy is something which can apply particularly to industrial uh, and semi-industrial processes in, a, in an engineering kind of way. It's one way you look for efficiencies and it drives sustainability thinking. Where, where is circular economy in, in the way that you operate? Um, and I'm thinking about the winery, I'm thinking about distribution, um, anything you can tell us on that? Gosh, that's a hard one for me. I, I sort of think, um, you know, we're always looking for efficiency and sort of everything we do. And we're sort of a, a circular system ourselves with, you know, growing our own fruit, processing it at our own facility, and then composting that same fruit at, back out into the vineyard. And um, so we're, you know, that would be um, kind of our greatest example um, that I can think of um, off the top of my head and not come up with a good well, That's actually pretty, yeah. that's pretty circular. Um, and that leads me to our next question, which is, are there too many terms for the same thing? Um, you know, I have friends who've worked in sustainable agriculture for 35 years, and they are apoplectically angry about the idea of regenerative agriculture because they feel like it's undefined and it's an opportunity for greenwashing and it doesn't have the thought and intellectual heft that sustainable agriculture standards developed over the last 30 years do. It's just suddenly arrived and it sounds cool. Do you worry sometimes there are too many of these terms, circular economy I just mentioned, regenerative, sustainable? Do we need a common language for the wine industry on sustainability, one that's recognized globally? You know, I um, I think that that's a really good point. I think that that's why, you know, we like Napa Green certification because for us in our community, we know what the standards are, we know what the inspections are, and we know how to continuously improve in it. And, um, and we have that, that proof, that authenticity on the bottle. And, um, and I think that that's the same problem where people say natural wine. I mean, we're, we're, we are natural, it's a natural product. So all of these terms, um, they do sound cool, but having a, a certification that says I'm being thoughtful about this and whether it's a, a global industry standard that is a sustainable certification. I think that is where the value comes in because anyone can say anything, right? They can say, um, you know, I'm, I have this regenerative agriculture. Let's say, well, you know, if we're not doing regenerative agriculture, then we're not going to be here in 10 years. That's why we're sustainable. So, um, you know, that's where we're, we're trying to um, continuously improve and make sure the land is there. And if it's not regenerative, it's not going to be there in a state that's useful to anyone. 
Well, it's a very good point. About a year ago, I met some organic champagne producers in uh, in Paris at Vin Expo, and one of them was proudly telling me about how he tills the soil. And I pointed out to him that, that no-till agriculture is, is much better for greenhouse gas emissions because you get less soil oxidation and erosion. And he looked at me and in a strong French action, he said, where are these greenhouse gas emissions? I cannot see them. How do I know they are there? I am organic. <laughs> and, and I thought he was joking. Uh, and then I realized he was serious. And it struck me there's, you know, someone like him would feel morally superior to any, any other sustainability certification because they're organic. Um, yet some studies have shown, you know, there's more tractor use with organics. To, and again, to your earlier point, Emma, it's horses for courses, depends where you are. But it does seem like there's a huge amount of confusion about what constitutes sustainability. And then we have these little camps who are insisting that they're the best. It reminds me of that scene in Monty Python's Life of Life of Brian, you know, with the, the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front and the Popular Front. Um, and, I, and I wonder how we, can we solve that problem? Or, or, or is it a good thing? Maybe it's a good thing that we have all this innovation happening in different pockets and maybe we can all learn from each other. Well, we certainly um, steal quite a bit from organic agriculture, from biodynamic agriculture, and um, from anybody who's doing something cool that's good for the environment. So I'm happy to steal great ideas from, from anyone. And, you know, no matter what they call it, if we can incorporate it and make it a better place, then let's go. Yeah, exactly. Well, we can always learn, can't we? Um, yep. Let me ask you about packaging. Packaging is very difficult for wine. I mean, if we look at some of the, the columns that Jancis Robinson has produced recently for, for the FT, um, you know, she's looking at the impact of glass and what the glass industry is saying. And we know glass is one of the greatest materials in the sense that it's eminently, you know, it's recyclable more or less forever if you don't contaminate the waste stream. You know, other forms have their problems with either uh, material supply or, um, or recycling over time, PET degrades, for example, uh, when recycled. But one of the challenges, of course, is that um, we're not in control of what happens to glass. You know, I buy a bottle of wine from you. Um, how do you know what I do with that bottle, whether I'm driving to a bottle bank, whether or not that bottle bank is in a waste cycling system that means that that particular kind of glass is recycled? And how is that? How is the energy for that glass recycling system then provided on site? You know, if it's coal fired, maybe that's worse. So I appreciate the very difficult challenge. And when I open my wine fridge, I love seeing the glass in there. I don't want to see Tetra Pak in my wine fridge. <laughs> I just, I, it fills me full of horror, frankly. I've worked in sustainability for 20, some, 22 years. I, I should want, technically, I should want Tetra Pak or, or something like that in my wine fridge, but I don't. Um, what are your views? Uh, and I feel conflicted and bad about that, and maybe I should. But uh, what are your views on, on the future of packaging? We talked about kegs. For, for Sauvignon Blanc, which is which is great work. Do you see any any alternative for the glass bottle, or should we start thinking more about how we encourage better glass recycling? I um I think we should absolutely encourage more by the glass recycling. And um you know I'm always love that when I'm in Europe, I know that my Pellegrino bottle has been reused, not not just recycled. And I I love that, and that's something we should do in America. So instead of buying bottled water here. I have my little soda stream and I use filtered water and, um, and I'm thoughtful about it, but it is sort of nice to 
know when you're in a system where those bottles are being reused. And we, um, in Napa Valley, for our neighbors and regular customers who visit us, we do reuse and wash bottles in our My Virtue program with the wines that we have in kegs. So you can bring your bottle back and we'll refill it from keg and um, or we'll give you a clean one and wash yours and refill it from keg. And um, that's a silkscreen bottle like you would have on a silkscreen Pellegrino bottle. Um, but I, I do think glass is a challenge. I, over the years, have gotten a lot of grief at St. Superi that, oh, you know, if you just had bigger shoulders on that bottle and it was a little heavier, don't you want to reflect the quality of the wine? And my answer has been quite firmly, no, I'm not, my, the bottle is not what's important to me. Sure, I want to have an attractive package, but what's in the bottle, I would rather spend the money on creating a really fantastic wine and making sure it's in a good container that's going to maintain a long life for that wine, whether it's, you know, six months or, you know, six years, 16 years. Um, 20 years, you know, I, that's important to me. And so we've, um, we've worked to reduce the weight of our glass. Um, we purchase our glass um, in North America. It's quite where it's close to us. Um, and we're uh, clear about the standards that that glass is produced to. We push to have more recycled content. We do have one um, bottle that is a little heavier, but it is about 70% uh, recycled um, content on it. Um, but we reduced the, the weight um, about 30%, I think, last year on our Napa State Cabernet glass, which is one of our, you know, our second largest product that we produce. So we look at that and I think um, it's back to education. And, you know, I had a group, this discussion I just relayed was with a group of about 15 important retailers and restaurateurs from around the country who were visiting us at the winery. And I think they're they're not thinking about it like that. They're not thinking about this bottle feels like it's full and it's empty. There's no reason that glass should be that heavy. It's just irresponsible. And there's no package that's going to look that much better and that justifies that the cost of that glass, the cost of shipping that glass, and really, if I'm going to be pouring that wine all day long, I'm going to have carpal tunnel syndrome at the end. I, I mean, we shouldn't be, we should, there's just no reason. Yeah, I, I have here in front of me the heaviest wine bottle I have ever come across. Um, this is 1.6 kilograms empty. Oh my goodness. Uh, and I had until, until someone threw it away by accident thinking it was rubbish. I had also on the shelf behind me a 1977 bottle of Chianti Rufino, which weighed 500 grams. And I yeah. sometimes wonder, are we, are we making progress? <laughs> I mean, um, so I guess that, that is a challenge, isn't it? But, but I mean, I guess bottle weight can come down a long way. I mean, I guess you can come down to 400 grams, something like that, 500. Do you feel like that would perhaps be a bit too light? Yeah, we, you know, we don't want to have breakage, right? Obviously, we, we don't want to have breakage and we want to have glass that... Um, is going to, uh, you know, be of the appropriate color so we don't have light shock and things like that are important. But um, we can keep bringing it down. We're, we haven't pushed the envelope to the point where it's too light, 
Great. And um, if everybody starts doing a little bit and making it a little bit lighter, I think that's important. And I think just looking at the impact and conveying that to the consumer, having the consumer say to me, oh, your bottle's too light. Really? Let's think about why is my bottle lighter than that bottle? You know, I'm not conveying an image. You know, I the way I convey an image is putting the best darn wine we can in that bottle. That's my goal. And I want to do it in a way that's thoughtful um, to the people around it and our community. And um, that's the goal. I, I don't need to have this um, big, heavy thing in my hand. Well, Emma, that seems like a great place to end the conversation. As always in sustainability and wine, we could talk all day. Then we can have <laughs> wine and talk all night. But uh, um, we have things to do. Um, Emma Swain, CSW and CEO of St. Supreme Estate Vineyards and Winery, thank you for taking part in this Source for Tomorrow session. We really appreciate your time and insights. And, uh, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, um, thanks so much for having me. I look forward to, to visiting you or you visiting us when we can. Yes, we are planning a Future of Wine Sustainability Conference on California time early June, uh, June 2nd, 3rd. So check your diary for that. We'll send you an invite to come. Right. To, but it will be on Zoom uh, rather than face-to-face. -face. But it would be lovely to come and visit your wonderful vineyards at some point. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Toby. Thank you.